So this is Romans 7, 7 to 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do not want to do, if I do, sorry, let me start again. (laughs) And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil... I do not want to do this, I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... 
I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Thanks, Angus. I do believe um, that when you read the Bible, you know, with drama and energy, that often it does sort of say it, preach itself to you. Um, the clarity is really there and it's amazing how God speaks. So thank you, Angus. As many of you know, I worked for over 10 years as a youth and young adults minister. Um, and in that time, I, um, I, I heard a lot of testimonies of young teenagers and young adults. And one of the things that I, I heard um, as a kind of a, a theme, a pattern, was when you had a young person who'd grown up in a Christian family but had suddenly taken their faith seriously. Um, they'd be standing in front of all their friends at church, like, like, like this, and they'd feel the pressure sometimes to exaggerate what they used to be like. And, and the thing is, they'd grown up in a Christian... Many of these, you know, kids were just, just normal, you know, nice middle-class kids, but they wanted to appear like they'd had some kind of a road to Damascus experience. And so, you know, they might have smoked once behind the shelter shed and sneaked a bit of their dad's, you know, port or something after, after dinner one night. And suddenly they're like a gangster with a cigarette habit and a, you know, or whatever. And, um, and I used to, I remember this one friend, um, Chris, who was, I was uh, we were on the, this outreach mission thing to teenagers at Queenscliff uh, called Theo's. And Chris was like one of those type of young adults. And he was, you know, like 19, a Presbyterian, you know, <laughs> um, but he played the guitar. And, um, but he stood up in front of the teenagers, put his cap on back to front. I was chewing his chewing gum like this and, and told his testimony about how bad he used to be. Now, the thing is, while there's a bit of exaggeration going on for sometimes, and, you know, with, with teenagers when they're trying to impress their friends about their conversion... What we've got here in Romans 7b, the second, second bit of Romans 7, is Paul doing a what I used to be like kind of testimony. Only Paul is not some kind of insecure high school student, but he's a very insightful apostle. And what he does is he also, he does a kind of a tricky thing here, kind of like what a, um, it was a, a style of, writing that was common in the Greek, Greek philosophy is to take on the voice of a, a people group as well. So he's sort of speaking at two levels. He's talking about a little bit about what he used to be like, but also what Israel, the Israelites are like under the law. I mentioned last week that Romans 7 is a summary. Uh, uh, Romans 7 verse 5 and 6 sorry, is a summary of what we'll be looking at more today and next week. So Romans 7 uh, verse 5, which we, ha- we looked at last week, says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. I'll just read that again. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law we're at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. And this whole section that we've just had read out expands on that concept. So let's have a look at what he's saying. 
as uh, I just read out from that verse, verse 5, Paul gives the law of Moses a bit of a bad rap in verse 5, in, in, in a kind of a way, saying that it aroused sinful passions. In other words, it was like a greenhouse to sin. The law of Moses, it drew out the sin of, of him and of the Israelites. And it bore a, a, a poisonous fruit that led to death, to sin and death. And that's a, that's a pretty huge claim. And if you're a, a person who has a familiarity with Judaism, or if you're a converted Jew, um, you'll be going, that, that is a bit offensive. Is he saying the law is like evil or something? And so Paul goes on to address this. Verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. So what Paul is about to do is to show us that despite everything that he's just said about the law, that it is in, in fact a good gift from God. How is this the case? Well, he goes on and says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Before God gave the law to Moses, if you read back in Genesis, um, at the end of uh, when uh, Noah, the flood happens and Noah lands back on the earth and humanity starts again, God gives uh, uh, Noah and his family what theologians call the natural law or the Noahide laws, which are the, some basic principles of how to live. This is sort of basically what it means to be um, living in God's way. And... Um, but there's not a lot of detail. And sort of when theologians reflect on this, they, they sort of say, well, this is kind of the way we explain humanity's natural understanding of what's right and wrong. Like, you don't have to read the Bible to know basically that it's wrong to steal or murder someone. And they're the kind of, that's the kind of level we're talking about in the, in the natural law given to, to Noah. But um, when you get the law of Moses, what you get is... Not um, God changing his mind, but God adding a whole bunch of detail. So he fleshes all this out and he says, well, what are we really looking like? Let me show you my righteousness. Let me show you my justice. And so he gives the Ten Commandments and he gives the, law, the, the extended law that we see as we read the first um, five books of the Bible. The law of Moses is a more vivid explanation of God's righteousness. So it's a good thing. We should not think of it as sin. And also the law of Moses is really significant because it anticipates the future Messiah. When Jesus came, he didn't throw it away. He actually fulfilled it. And most importantly, he provided a once and for all sacrifice for sins. Because a lot of what the law was about was how the Israelites could atone for their sins, but he offered a once and for all final perfect sacrifice. And so the law of Moses is good because it anticipates it, it points forward to that. And we looked at this a, a bit in, in detail, if you remember back to our series on Hebrews last year and the year before. So for all these reasons, the law is good. Paul goes on to, he clarifies, the law simply served to draw the sinfulness out. His sin 
seized the opportunity, that's the language he uses, to do the wrong thing. Once he learned that coveting was a sin, uh, his sin wanted to covet even more. And he's not saying the law made him a sinner, rather that he was already a sinner and that the law exposed that fact. His already present sinful desires responded to the law, put in front of it. A great theologian, Douglas Moo, puts it this way. It was only after the Israelites had heard the commandment not to make any idols for themselves, in Exodus 20, verse 4, that they had Aaron fashion a golden calf for them to worship, (laughs) Exodus 32. In just this way, the law abused by the sinful tendency already resident in every person has been instrumental in stimulating all kinds of sinful tendencies. Think of it like this, maybe. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve when God gave them the law, the one law not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did they do? They suddenly wanted to eat from it. They did not trust God. They challenged his authority. They ate from the tree, and this led to their punishment and death. And on a national scale, Israel did the exact same thing when God gave the law to Moses. So really the problem with Israel and with Paul before he's converted to Christianity as a, like an individual example is their sin, not the law. Look at verse 12. So then the law is holy, says Paul, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. The law cannot promote anything that's sinful or that's wrong. It is good. It is positive and desirable Israel can't blame the law. It's their sin that's the problem. Verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, use what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. So he's clarifying, there's a bit of repetition and he's clarifying and there's a bit of repetition, a bit of clarification. He's clarifying that this good and just law did not lead him to death. Um, The problem was his sin. The law simply showed the true colours of his sin. He couldn't hide it any longer. The law created the conditions for his sin to do its thing. Sin is the culprit. And I was thinking about, like maybe a metaphor is like this. It's like water and mold. Water is pure and good and life-giving. Mold is mold. It's green and smelly. And um, if you put water on mold and damp, over time, it creates the conditions for the mold to spread and grow, and it draws it out. It's a bit like that parallel. The problem is not the water, it's the mold. So Paul goes on in verses 14 to 20 just to re-emphasize that sin is the problem. The experience of the unconverted Jew living under the law is that they struggle about in their sin. But what we must realize here is that Paul's observation is a little bit, it's it's nuanced because he's looking back as a Christian with the perspective of, of a Christian looking back at what he was like. Um, 
He, Paul speaks as though he, he's speaking as if he's an unconverted Jew. Like, for example, he says, he's putting on the voice of that, verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I do do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. But the Israelites, if, if they would not necessarily say they're like that. Paul, before he was converted, we, we see an image of him in, um, in Acts um, 8, I think it is, um, where he's, he's participating in the stoning of, of, of the Christian Stephen to death. This is before Paul, Paul was converted. And he's, he stands there, you know, holding the clothes for the, for the, for the mob. And he's, he's portrayed, portrayed as a leader and confident and he starts the persecution of the Christians, it says in Acts 8 verse 3. And um, there's no sense in which he thinks of himself as a, like a fish flapping about on the road, struggling with his sin. But now as a Christian putting on this voice and reflecting on what he was like, actually I was struggling with, struggling with my sin. And, and actually Israelites are struggling with their sin. If you walk down St. George's Road, North Fitzroy, near where I live, or or down Smith Street or whatever, you don't see a whole bunch of people thinking of themselves as struggling about in their sin, do you? You don't, you don't think of it that way. It's only with the perspective of, of, of the Holy Spirit living within you and, and being united with Christ that you can actually see the reality of the situation. And Paul uses this word spiritual. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Um, in our vision statement, we say we want to be a church that nourishes spiritual seekers. And it begs the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? Often we think of a person who is spiritual as uh, a person who spends a lot of time meditating or being in touch with God or in some kind of profound kind of way or having an awareness of the spiritual realm. Or sometimes we say that someone who has deep insights is spiritual in the late 60s, uh, the Beatles fam- famously went to India and they wanted to be spiritual and they stayed at the ashram of the Maharishi uh, Mahesh Yogi um, and they wrote a lot of songs for the White Album there. And it was there that they did transcendental meditation. Uh, they were trying to be spiritual in a spiritual place and then it went a bit pear-shaped because um, I think it was Mia Farrow accused him the the, the Maharishi of making a pass at her and her sister Prudence. That's where you get the song. Um, and so they sort of left and there was a bit of a press th- attention on it. And uh, But anyway, George Harrison stayed being a Hindu, I think. <laughs> but is that spiritual? Is that what we're talking? Is yoga spiritual? Is India spiritual? Is incense spiritual? Is the White Album spiritual music? What does Paul say spiritual is? I'm not talking about Paul McCartney. What does Paul say? Paul, Paul talks about things that are spiritual a fair bit in his writings. He refers to spiritual gifts, spiritual blessings, spiritual truths, spiritual people, spiritual seed, that is the gospel, spiritual food or drink, spirit, the spiritual rock, that is Christ, the spiritual body, spiritual songs, and spiritual understanding. And in each case, the common thing that makes something spiritual, according to Paul, is because it's given and inspired by God. So too, he says, the law is spiritual. It's given and inspired by God. 
So this is a good reminder to us that when we are talking about nourishing spiritual seekers, what we are actually saying is that we want to offer God's good and inspired gift of his blessings, his truth, his gospel, because we are spiritual people. We're not talking about nourishing spiritual seekers with a spiritual vibe. And Paul goes on to reflect in the voice of the unconverted Israelite that because he does not have the spirit, he is unspiritual and cannot even begin to know uh, how to respond to the sin that lives within him. Verse 19, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And just to remind you, when, when, he was a, when he was a Jewish sort of zealot, some, some people even say the word terrorist, because he, he actually killed people and organized the killing of people, Christians. He thought of himself as faultless. That's what the word he says in Philippians 3, 6. But with the perspective of a Christian looking back, he says, no, what I was like back then was a person who does not do the good I want to do and I don't, do, doing the things I don't want to do and, and is in a bad place. And he says that it is the sin living within me or in me, and he's not, what he's not doing is sort of shifting the blame and saying, it's not really me, it's the sin. Like a, You know how sometimes in, in, in court when someone commits murder and the, and the barrister might sort of use an argument like, oh, it was the, it was the mental illness. They were, you know, um, uh, struggling with something. And so that's, that's what we're going to blame uh, to try and get them off and, uh, as manslaughter, which well, maybe it's legitimate sometimes. But Paul's not trying to dodge here. He's saying that this is really his nature that was doing this. He's responsible. It's his sinful nature that's driving his actions. Verse 21, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But he hasn't. I I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Oh, look, this is a funny little complex few verses. He's talking about three kinds of laws. There's, um, he can see the goodness of God's law, but he has another law, which is the law of sin, which is like the sin principle, waging war against the law of my mind. Oh, he's just a big mess. And so he says, verse 24, What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. And we sing, the only time we say that word is when we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, who saved a wretch like me. A wretch like me. Not very often you'll be called a wretch any other time. To be a wretch is to be the opposite of blessed. It means to be in a state of misery and emotional turmoil. And the pre-converted Paul is a wretch because he's a slave to sin. His body is ruled, ruled by sin. He wants to be rescued. So he's saying, I want to be rescued, not so much from my body. I don't want it. It's not like he wants to leave his body, but the, the body that is subject to death. He wants his body to be transformed. He wants his whole self changed. And he cries out for a doctor to pull the sin out of him. This is the cry of the Israelites under the law. And that doctor has come. See verse 25. 
he gives us some relief. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is Jesus Christ who did not come to, uh, for the healthy, but he came for the sick. This is what Jesus said. This is Jesus Christ who came to save us from our sin, where the word sin um, means you know, missing the mark, the corruption within us. And the word salvation also means to heal. This is Jesus Christ, who is the only one who confronted Paul on the road to Damascus and converted him from being a Jewish terrorist to a Christian apostle. So then Paul summarizes his whole argument one more time, just to make it clear in verse 25. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law. In other words, in his intellect, he's obsessed with God's law. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Yet in his sinful nature, it means that he doesn't matter how much of the law he knows intellectually, he still can't stop breaking it. So the natural question then, uh, putting Paul down, um, uh, put the Romans 7b passage to the, to, on the table, the natural question you might be asking yourself is, if you are a Christian, which I presume many of us here are today, you, will say, you might be saying to yourself, why do I still struggle with sin? If, if Paul's describing what he used to be like, I sort of still feel like that. I still feel like I do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things I should do. And I often feel I'm burdened by my unworthiness. You might be thinking that. And the first thing you need to know is that I totally get what you're talking about. I spend a lot of time reflecting on my own obedience. And at different times, I get an overwhelming sense of my unworthiness, my struggles. And Paul, he too knows what, the, what this is like. I mean, he, he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And of course he was talking about his old life as the terrorist. You know, but, but he's not under any illusion that he's perfected now and he's never sins again. Uh, John writes in 1 John 1, 8 to 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we, we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's simultaneous realities at work. The person living in the way of the Spirit, to use the language of um, verse, chapter 7, verse 6 of Romans, the person who has converted to Christ is no pathetic piece of work. If you are with Christ, then do not have a too low a view of yourself. God loves you. He will never let you go. He dwells in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you are with Christ, you are not a hopeless wretch. If you are with Christ, you are a beautiful child of God. If you are with Christ, you are rescued from your slavery to sin. But the reality is you're not in heaven yet. You are a work in progress. You one day will be perfected, but your time has not arrived yet. The person who is with Christ, living in the way of the Spirit, still struggles with sin, still messes up, but there's a big difference 
between them and a person who is not with Christ. And as that is that you don't, when you are with Christ, you no longer make friends with sin. It's a difference between, um, it's very vivid, but it's a difference between a pig who likes to roll in mud and then a pig who suddenly detests the mud and when the pig gets dirty, doesn't like the mud anymore. Still gets dirty, but doesn't like it anymore. God loves you. He knows your struggles. He's working to change you from the inside out. He's made you in his image. And you bear the image of Christ. So God has made you worthy for, for what he's done in Christ. And because of these two realities, which Paul's going to keep exploring in the next bit of Romans, this life is a wrestle. But it's a wrestle in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a wrestle where you're not alone. You have the people of God to support you as well as the Holy Spirit. People of God to hold you up, to challenge you, to help you, to listen to you, to remind you that you're forgiven. And you are changing. You are growing. And the the other thing to remember is the more mature you get in your faith, the, the, the longer you stay a Christian, the higher your standard becomes of obedience because God reveals more and more to you about the deep things of his gospel. And then you start to go, oh, maybe the way I've been living the last few years is I've been doing some things not quite right, you know. And so your standard gets higher and you get more sort of almost sensitive as God's light shines more on you. You see more. And that's a good thing. It's also a bit painful. It's like when you're learning a musical instrument. uh, You get to the end of high school and you think, I'm really accomplished in my school. And you go to uni and you're surrounded by um, professors and other great musicians and suddenly you realise, oh, there is more more to go. There's more I can do. And it's only a parallel that works a certain way, but this idea that there's... What we're, what we're growing into is the, the likeness of Christ means that we'll always be discovering more and more that can be changed in us by God. And this is an encouraging thing. It's an inspiring thing. And sometimes what we do need is our Christian brothers and sisters who are cl- close to us to, to tell us how we've changed over time. Um, I, you know, I have, I have a friend who I said to him last year, I said, do, I, do you think I'm any different to what I was like 10 years ago in, in my faith? He said, yes, you've changed. And it was so good to hear that because you can't see it yourself. This is what Christian spirituality looks like. It's a, about obedience, really. You want to be spiritual? Be obedient. That, that's what, it, what it's down to. The fact that you feel burdened at times just means God's spirit's stirring in you. Keep reminding yourself of this. Jesus, God's son, has died on the cross and risen again. And if you have faith in that, God looks at you and says, you are a child of God, you are forgiven, you're with me. So hold your chest up high. Boast not in yourself, but in the gospel. And say, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray for that. Lord God, thank you so much that you have saved us from being a wretch 
and uh, we don't have to flap about uh, anymore. But we have the Holy Spirit to help us and the people of God. And thank you that you are gradually perfecting us and that one day, in the twinkling of, of an eye, we all will be changed and we will be glorified with you. Amen.